Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1296, entitled, There's No Business Like Snowpiercer Business. <laughs> Very apt. <laughs> Our podcast title is Time to Pod. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Ah, here we are. And I have survived to tell you that I am COVID free. Excellent. <laughs> Woohoo. <laughs> I, I did the test. <laughs> oh, yes. And I, I've heard it's quite the experience, shall we say? The, the ick is indeed. <laughs> but you know what? It's probably more comfortable than being on a ventilator, I would say. Exactly. So don't be afraid to get tested, folks. No, no. Um, if you go to a car park and you run into a, a source known as Deep Nostril, <laughs> you'll know what's going on. Um, yeah, and, and I've been doing masking too. Oh, good. That's Cause, good though. Because um, I'm a costumer and it's like, <laughs> what, just one mask? Exactly. And it's it's just fabric <laughs> and it's... I'm not wearing it under a helmet. Yeah, exactly. There's not layers of titanium on top. And I'm not wearing the helmet inside of another costume that's a vehicle, like a TARDIS or a Vorlon or a tank or something. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Nothing. Child's play. Yeah, it is actually. Anyway. (laughs) So back uh, back to the normal world of Zero G. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, previously on, on Zero G, we memorialised the late Sir Ian Holm, and while I was doing a deep dive into his acting career, my little grey cells were boggled by the discovery that he played Hercule Poirot uh, in a, a charming little television confection titled Murder by the Book. The telly movie featured Peggy Ashcroft as Agatha Christie, um, and she was just about to publish Curtain, her final novel to feature the dapper detective, in which he dies after solving one last mystery. And while Christie's reading a proof of the manuscript, she falls asleep and dreams she's visited by an indignant Poirot who has come to investigate his own demise. <laughs> it's plotted by his very own creator. It's all rather amusing and saw Poirot and the writer pursuing each other through Christie's home, bent on each other's destruction. And there's even a scene with a rotating table and two cups of cocoa, one of which, but of course, is poisoned. I I just thought I'd mention it. Perhaps a a little bit of online sleuthing will turn up a copy of this little gem for you to watch, Nespar. So I'm also looking forward to the release of Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, which is the latest entry in the never-ending popular iconic anime saga, which pits giant human piloted mecha against equally ginormous off-world creatures. And ahead of that release, there's a special 25th anniversary five-disc box soundtrack set, which will include many of the classic compositions from the long-running series, plus 
bonus covers of some of the more iconic themes. Now, it should become available uh, in Japan at least uh, around about the start of October. But, of course, things are uh, a bit wibbly-wobbly in the old space-time continuum at the moment. We don't necessarily know if things uh, will happen as scheduled. Now, we're going to uh, talk about the Snowpiercer television series today on Netflix. And when I um, was looking at all of this, I remembered a, a show called Super Train mm. from 1979. <laughs> it was about a, an atomic-powered train, uh, sort of like an Amtrak train crossing America. It was basically like the love boat as a train. <laughs> so they only made nine episodes, so it tells you something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I've been thinking about science fiction trains for a while, and uh, one of the best ones, I think, is uh, the, the story set out by China Mieville, who we've interviewed at least twice on Zero-G, uh, his book The Iron Council, which is a, a sort of a fantasy novel with bolts on it, uh, and they're building a, a cross-continental railway line through their fantasy world. And also Rail Sea, uh, which is another one where they're using the trains almost as ships out across the desert and they're hunting um, creatures out there like whales. So from trains, it's a bizarre one. But if you've you've got – if you're into fantasy train spotting, the Iron Council and Rail Sea by China Mieville, definite, definite winners there. And, of course, there was the original uh, uh, steampunk – weird western the wild wild west which was set aboard a a tricked up train there's also an anime series called carbonari of the iron fortress and this is one where you've got uh, the very locomotives and they're out there um, helping villagers escape from the cabani which are giant moles (laughs) and that one too also sort of parodied the uh uh, the Hel- Herman Melville Moby Dick series too. So this okay. to be some kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> the white whale of <laughs> persists. Yeah, and trains. I don't know. Uh, okay, so we've got um, Snowpiercer or, or am I going to make a run at this one? Le Go tra- on. Le Transpersonisia, <laughs> <laughs> which is the original post-apocalyptic French graphic novel created by Jacques Lobb and Jean-Marc Rochette in 1999. There was three uh, riffs off of that with new writers running through each one, The Explorers, The Crossing, and in 2015, Terminus. And they've been released by Titan uh, in English translations, he says, Mm labouring over the pun like a a choo-choo. Uh, the uh, the graphic novels are the graphic novels, and the movie is the movie, and the series is well, you know, you get the idea. <laughs> so to um, counteract global warming, mankind experiments with a large scale geoengineering project that goes horribly wrong, plunging the Earth into deep freeze conditions. Now I kind of despise that idea. It's that that persistent idea that we're going to head into an ice age, which is usually just kicked around so that the fossil fools can just keep pumping out the old CO2. 
you know, because they're protecting us really from an ice age by warming the earth, you know, you get it? Okay, yeah, I see. I see where you're coming from there, yeah. but yes. <laughs> so there are some few survivors that purchase or fight their way on board the Snowpiercer, which is a 1,001-car-long multi-neck train, um, sorry, multi-deck train, that must continuously travel the globe in order to keep its perpetual motion engine working. I'm not even going to trip over the idea of a perpetual motion machine. Let's just not go there. Uh, And they're trying to prevent the train's passengers from freezing to death because this is how they keep warm. I don't know why they couldn't just set the the train up in a Ferris wheel or something like that, the motion engine. But then where would the danger and excitement come from, Rob? Where would all the avalanches and fear of the great freeze come from, you know? Yeah. It's social commentary in a train, rather like an apartment block on its side with the rich folk at one end and the front instead of on the top of the train. Uh, it's seven years after the freeze in this particular adaptation in the television series. And, of course, we had um, Bong Joon-ho's movie adaptation in 2013, which popped it all into a couple of hours or less if you happen to have seen the butchered cut. <laughs> <laughs> and we watched the movie back in the day and, you know, cause. Bong Joon-ho and Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton. Mm, a ripping good dystopian mm. kind of thriller. Yeah, very, very highly recommend, but I'd imagine most of you would have watched it. And we, we felt we had sufficient distance now to watch the series. And Netflix has the movie as well, right next to the series. So, you know, you can do both. Um, I almost don't know if it's a good idea to watch the movie first. I wonder, because I did look up, I was intrigued by the timeline here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're going to try to avoid spoilers, and I'm only a couple of eps in anyway, but I did look up when this series was set as compared to the film. I would wonder whether you would want to watch the movie first or not. I would think you probably would mm. if you hadn't watched this. And then see this as like a little, you know, a side dish perhaps. I don't know. What What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think maybe patience would figure into it because the mm. the series is dropping one episode per week. Yes, true. That's true. There's quite a few out already though now. I think there's seven available. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and they're all 40 to 50 minutes. So there's plenty of content there, but you're right. They, they are drip feeding it to us one episode per week. So, I mean, not that you're at, at a loss for content, but, um, yeah, you, you you'll reach a point where there's episodes you haven't you don't have access to. The series is riffing off the graphic novels a bit more um, because they've got the luxury of time to spend that the format of television gives. Uh, Indeed. And and it can delve into the sociology and world-building procedural that the film didn't have track space to get into. Um, There's a police procedural overlay in this one. That was a a bit of a surprise and I thought that was a quite nice touch because I was wondering what the angle might be. As someone who's unfamiliar with the graphic novels, I wondered what angle the TV series was going to take Mm. and then when it sort of unfolded, you can kind of see where they're going with this and what's going to propel the series forward and I I thought that was actually quite a nice choice that it's a bit of a sci-fi mystery in fact. Mm. Now, the policeman in in question – to, to give you a rough idea of um, how it's all set out, you know, it actually does also reminds me of the J.G. Ballard novel High Rise. 
only oh yeah only on its side <laughs> <laughs> okay. also an adaptation into a film too that high rise film that's right with uh hiddles Yes, Tom Hiddleston, yes. Yes, he's in that. Uh, anyway, um, back to Snowpiercer. Uh, with, with this, the, the policeman in question is a tailie. So he's one of these unticketed passengers who jumped on, who fought their way on board of the train as it was pulling out and as the, as the planet started to snap freeze. Mm. So they're not really welcome on the train, but they've kind of become integrated into the structure, like the mm. forward sections uh, we'll use them as uh, labourers to do unpleasant tasks and sometimes elevate them into the front section after they've uh, maybe had a death or they, they need to replace mm. someone. So there, there's a kind of a, an, a very, very rough and uneasy truce between the two sections of the train, uh, with the larger section being actually the the, uh, the first, second and third class. Um First class is the ruling class. There's a lot of people in that class who don't seem to do a whole lot. <laughs> it makes me ill, and I know that's the whole point of the social commentary piece, but uh, yes. Yes. Second class seems to be people uh, in security and in other sort of mid-level positions. Key roles, you could say, yeah. Yeah. Third class, uh, basically everybody who keeps things going. Your workers. Yeah. And then there's the tailies who have got no class, according to the uh, the bosses. Mm. Uh, and it is it is a dystopic series, of course, because um, mm. this is not a, not a jolly good time. Um, having the tailies there has placed additional stress upon the closed environment that the Snowpiercer is. Um, it's a bit like a, a spaceship. And let, let me make it clear, mm. you can't just go for a stroll outside of the Snowpiercer. For one thing... For one thing, it can't stop. For another thing, if you put some exposed flesh out into it, you will just end up with a snap frozen arm or leg or whatever. Mm. Um, it's just very, very cold out there. This is this is the reality now. It's this train or nothing, the great nothing. <laughs> yeah. So that may change because there are different elements in the graphic novel that are brought into play, and I don't know how far ultimately how they're going to go down that route. Interesting. Hmm. So this is this train is basically a, a fortress to class, mm. and such a good description. One of the characters, um, the uh, Layton, his name is. He's a tailie. He he used to be a policeman, and he gets. Uh, brought up to the forward sections to help solve a, solve a crime, which is the police procedural that we were talking about. Now, he is played by an actor called David Diggs, which is a great name, David Diggs. Mm-hmm. Um, he is African-American and he's also a rapper, which I love, that there is a person in here, often we have celebrity singers, we don't often get celebrity rappers. Okay, so uh, here's a track from an album called Hood Superhero. Uh, S-U-P-A, Superhero, Volume 1, and it's by uh, uh, Q Moshin, Q apostrophe M-O-S-H-Y-N, for those of you who are writing these things down. And this is a track called Jungle. And and I felt that Jungle was actually very appropriate to the world of Snowpiercer because it is. You know, it's not just like this nice little train barreling along. The layered class leads to a, a lot of angst and nightmares and dystopic behavior on everyone's part so here we go david diggs who plays Leighton in snowpiercer the series with jungle 
Guess who's coming to Dinar? <laughs> I'm Robert Trevor. I play Salmonius, the merchant prince in Hercules, the legendary journeys, and Xena warrior princess. You're listening to 3FM, the station of the gods. Ah, Zeus! Hey, hey, go easy with that lightning! Sheesh! So, there we go. Jungle featuring David Diggs on an album called Hood Superhero. Q Motion is the talent behind that, wrapping it out there for in a very in a very snowpiercery like rhythm, I thought. Mm. Yeah, very trainy, trainy wane, <laughs> trainy waney. <laughs> Perpetual motiony. Yeah. Okay. Uh, David Diggs plays Detective Andre Layton, and he's the uh, the main guy in the series, the main protagonist. And the actor himself is best known probably for originating the role of Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton. <gasps> he, uh, he's from Hamilton? He's from Hamilton, yeah. He, he won the gongs for um, a Grammy Award and a Tony Award for that one. And, um, of course, the Tony Award being the one that Tony Stark Foundation uh, gives out to promising young stars every year. <laughs> But he's also been in the uh, the television series Blackish. Uh, he was in the films Wonder, Velvet Buzzsaw, and also in the series Get Down and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And he has a further link with that because he's a singer. There's a, a an animated musical series, which boggles my mind just to start with, uh, called Central Park. Mm, yes. And that's got a lot of people in it who we know and love, like Kristen Bell mm-hmm. uh, doing the voice voices and the songs, and Titus Burgess as well from um, uh, Kimmy Schmidt. And David Diggs has some songs in that too. <laughs> so I've got to have a look at that when it, when that um, comes out. Actually, that might be one of those ones that you'll have to buy on um, one of the streamers or something. But anyway, It'll be good to check out. Yeah. So David Diggs is actually um, – quite a dynamic character and the police procedural that he has to undertake in the Snowpiercer train means that he has access to most of the compartments and that's a great way you know to to explore the whole thing and that's what it's all about this one um they built about 20 cars for the uh the television series for the Mm -hmm. as a world building exercise and and it's worth exploring that just for a moment I'm not David Diggs, but uh, I fortunately can tell you about production designer Barry Robertson. Uh, they, were, they, they built all of this in Vancouver, and they wanted to do it for real rather than have too much CGI, although I, I like noticed that. I like that. the train itself is CGI as far as I can see. It would have been fun if they built a really big model. <laughs> I think fully built interiors is still pretty good, though. I think that's kind of cool that they had all those real sets. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, they pad out this sort of stuff when they have to. But it, to, to to drill it down, to open up the train a bit more. So, okay, mm-hmm. 1,001 cars, uh, I think something like 10 miles long. So, you know, it takes like if the if the locomotive goes past a fixed point next to the track, then it takes like, minutes and minutes and minutes before the rest of the train gets there. It just feels so vulnerable to me. Just all the shots of it out there just made me feel so anxious. Anyway, I guess that's the point. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you get, you get that, that sense at the end, they're like in space basically or underwater 
near as totally. near as damn it because the environment will kill you pretty quickly. And so will several people aboard the train. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's all sorts of mayhem that happens in, in it. Now, the original Snowpiercer movie, not the graphic novels, but at least the movie, focused upon a uh, an ongoing rebellion and a revolt. It's not quite quite the uh, the story in the series, but it's early days yet in the first six or seven episodes. Uh, there is enough tension there certainly to start one of those at any time. Uh, so you know it's always in the background. But really they're more into the internal world building of the train in this. So we will get to see every section of the train. We'll also see the under train, which is um, which has its own train in it so you can go from one end to the other because there's wow yeah well it's like you know it's the 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 lower decks where a lot of the mm. the maintenance and uh mm. things like changing out the um because i was thinking about this myself uh you know this train doesn't stop what happens if a, a motor wears out or a wheel goes bung or so you actually have to service it while the machine is still going that's very hazardous and they have these really brave people called brake men who uh, wear, wear essentially like spacesuits because they sometimes have to go out on the train. And it was a hair-raising sort of uh, scene in one of the later shows. And, and you realise that these brakemen, they're, they're like her- heroic characters. They're larger than life. <laughs> and there's some fun to be had with that, which is just as well because there's not a whole lot of fun to be had in the Snowpiercer series. Quite grim. Very dark. Yes, indeed. So like I said, we're six or seven years down the track, quite literally. They've probably circled the... Uh... They've probably... I think it says they circle the globe maybe once. I think it's once a year. So, yeah, I mean, I guess they've that's seven circumnavigations, if that's a... <laughs> Um, yeah, so they're constantly chugging along seven years down the track. So we've had a bit of time to get settled into the ecosystem, as they call it, and think of it. And everything sort of has a way of working, should we say. With with the setup as it is, it's almost as if they do like car of the week. <laughs> Which is actually kind of a cool idea. Like I think, I mean, and that's the, the brilliance of the take of this If it's that we do want to see more of how the train works, what the different cars are like. So that's a pretty exciting way to do it, I think. Now, the other main character, and we've talked about David Diggs, the detective, who has his mm-hmm. entire own backstory, because everybody brings what they had onto the train, you know, like he was a, de- a police detective. Um, there's another guy who's like the last Australian. <laughs> I'm not confident that guy was actually Australian. From what I heard of his accent, it was a little shoddy. Well. It does actually raise an interesting question. Um, when the Snowpiercer left uh, its original starting point, uh, an American city, was it Chicago? Mm. Am I right there? I, I can't remember, actually. It's been a while. It's been seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, I'd be willing to bet that I would be a tailor, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be leaping on that moving carriage, would you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, the... Um, it's set out from this American city, and yet there's people from all over the world mm. in the tail well, section. I assume maybe, yeah. I guess they wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't let them jump. I guess maybe they make stops to take on normal, normal. I shouldn't say that. Like ticketed passengers, but then why would they open up the back portion? Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting. I, I, I mean, I guess. 
My, those, that city maybe was multicultural though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My impression was it happened like like instantly, the the, mm. uh, the freeze on, mm. on the day. But who knows? It's just, just a silly, silly question that I have. <laughs> so, okay, um, the other main character, as I said, not the train, not the detective, Jennifer Connolly plays Melanie Cavill. Uh, Melanie is basically in charge of hospitality on the train, which means that she is um, Mr. Wilford's right-hand person. Uh, Mr. Wilford is the, the head of the big industrial complex that built this train initially for other reasons, but fortuitously, as it turned out. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, the, the filthy rich always have to have an apocalyptic bolt hole in these movies, and so this is this is proved. We haven't actually seen Mr. Wilford yet in the series. Uh, a little bit of a spoiler there. But um, Melanie certainly knows his needs and wants and delivers all of those in regular, not podcasts, but broadcasts over the train's intercom system. And it's funny because there's little echoes of normal train spotting practice in there, like some of the most dire things that she says will be followed by, sorry for any inconvenience cause. (laughs) (laughs) She's note perfect, I think, in this role. I think Jennifer Connelly is she really, to me, is like one of the core engaging things in the episodes I've watched so far. She's put in a lot of solid work in the genre since Labyrinth, where she was mm. Sarah. Uh, the Rocketeer, Dark City, she was Betty Ross in Hulk. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still, the unfortunate remake, and um, Alita Battle Angel as well. So done a lot of stuff in the genre. And, and I think she is wonderful in this. She, she's is the epitome of the upper class, but actually she's one of the workers mm. in, the, in the series. She does a lot herself, um, way more than I thought she would do initially. There is, a, there is another person also doing um, those sorts of duties, and she reminds me more of uh, the, the glad-handing uh, happy clapper from the Hunger Games, whose name escapes me. Yeah, you know the one. Yeah, the um, one that Elizabeth Banks plays. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, anyway, so you've got this, this, all of this stuff set in motion, and it never stops. And each episode, uh, somebody else introduces the story, and they always end up with a thousand and one cars long. You know, this is the Snowpiercer. So I, I think this this series actually has quite a few legs in terms of being uh, an extension of the the movie and the uh, the graphic novels. Um, I don't believe it's actually necessary to have read or watched that first movie, although you might very well have along the way. I think for me, I love the world building in this, mm. constantly coming up with uh, new aspects of life on board a train. And I'm not really a train spotter, but after this I might become one. <laughs> um, I think it's it's good. I think... From what I've seen so far, I found it very engaging. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm enjoying it because it's pretty bleak, but there's enough stuff in there that's adding a bit of spice. And I will say I think um, it's, yeah, there's a bit of violence in there. And if you've seen the movie, you would expect such things. But, yeah, just obviously a bit of a warning that there's, it's a dystopia and they're not, they're taking it seriously. So there's some blood and violence. Yeah, indeed there is. And, I mean, you know, it's also because it's a police procedural. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, we're centering around those kinds of crimes, so you can expect yeah. those uh, kinds of details. Yeah. Uh, and this is a, a movie that, uh, sorry, a series that um, is highly set orientated because they're all in this, like in the bottles of the carriages. Mm. And, and you can see that that influences the way the actors move and work with the piece. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of having to transfer from uh, upper levels and, and negotiate narrow corridors and, you know, and I think that actually works really well. Uh, you get a real sense that you're in this environment. You're stuck in there, and and I, I felt I felt pressured watching this, and, and the aspect of the fact that they're essentially in lockdown too. Mm. Now I've been pretty fortunate during the pandemic. I haven't actually been in lockdown, but I can see the pressure that would be building up upon people, and so maybe this is not the best one to watch. <laughs> In this occasion. Now, we've also been watching um, <laughs> Penny Dreadful City of Angels. So, you know, we'll we'll chill out at the end of the week watching an episode of Snowpiercer <laughs> and that. And it's after that we have to watch an episode of uh, Eureka, <laughs> which has also gone dystopic <laughs> recently, <laughs> even though that's, a, that's a, a long past series. So there's no escape for us at the moment. We'll, no. We'll we just have to get on that train. So, yeah, I, I, I think it is a good uh, entry in the dystopia stakes. Whether or not you're ready for that at the moment, I don't know. Okay, so that's Snowpiercer. It's on Netflix. They're dropping new episodes each week, like uncoupled cars from a train. And they're, I think they're about six or seven in so far, so you won't have too far to, to go. All right, so we'll have a track here called Seoul Train, and that Seoul is in the South Korean city, uh, and it's by Marco Beltrami. And again, this is from the Snowpiercer original motion picture soundtrack. This is China Mievel, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM, Melbourne. Yeah, all aboard the Seoul Train, Marco Beltrami, Snowpiercer original motion picture soundtrack there just just as uh, we pull into the station there after talking about the Snowpiercer television series which is on Netflix all right there's a reason why we're going to play a k-pop track Woohoo! <laughs> what's that reason Megan <laughs> <laughs> uh well last um week we talked a little bit about how some K-pop fans have been sort of doing a little bit of political advocacy, which is nothing um, new in terms of often these kinds of fandoms, they will, they do a lot of charity things or they'll get together and say there's a, a, ba- a band member, that a group member that they, it's their birthday and so all the fans will decide to make a big donation in their name to some kind of charity or something like that as, as an as honouring that person's birthday. So they just do all kinds of different things like this. And one thing to remember too is that they're a very large presence on Twitter and TikTok and and so this is kind of how they spread their message and mobilise on different things. And one of the things that I think particularly it has been US fans, um, it doesn't really involve South Korean fans because obviously that's a totally separate country and it just wouldn't make sense. So it's really the US fans of K-pop bands have been mobilising to do different kinds of political 
protests, I guess you would say. Yeah, activism, things around Trump's rally, things around um, problematic right-wing hashtags, and they've really all kind of channeled this love of K-pop into, as a group, doing all kinds of other activities. (laughs) So fandom rules. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a very interesting area, and I think it's it's certainly got the attention of a lot of media, and I think people are sort of turning their attention because they've known for a long time that K-pop is um, quite big at the moment, I think, in terms of fandoms, and that's getting more and more attention over time, I think, as well. And this is kind of just another way that it's been in the headlines lately. So, well, I've got to very say, interesting. I've got to say, I'd much rather be a fan of K-pop than Trump. yeah I think if we're choosing um that's for sure but yeah I mean I definitely think as fans you know we love we're very passionate about our geeky stuff and I think it's nice if fans I mean I know there's problematic areas of fandom in there's some toxic cultures in there like everywhere but if they're mobilizing to do cool stuff to prank Trump I'm down for it (laughs) (laughs) so we're going to play this as a as a salute to the fandom menace that is k-pop (laughs) <laughs> why, yes. Why this particular track? Oh, well, so I, I sort of, I mulled, when Rob said, oh, why don't you choose a K-pop track? I was like, yes, my time has come. Get to play K-pop on the show. So obviously I thought I would play something by BTS. They're a very big band right now. Well, they've been big for a few years, but they're sort of becoming more into the spotlight and people are sort of in the mainstream taking a little bit more notice of BTS as a band and kind of what they're about. I personally am a fan. So I thought I would take a track of theirs and I was like, oh, should I choose this track? Oh, no, this track has a really good message. And then I just went, no, no, this is my favourite track. It's a real banger. I want to play this track. So I'm going to play DNA. It's from Love Yourself, Her album, and it's by BTS. And this is a salute to K-pop fans out there who um, are, yeah, just shaking things up. Zero G is fun, as you were. Triple R. Uh, yes, salute to K-pop fans out there um, doing it right. <laughs> uh, that was DNA by BTS, also known as Bangdan Sonia Dan. Uh, so, yeah, K-pop track. Woo! <laughs> All I can say to Mr. Trump is TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that was um, quite impressive. Uh, I was looking at the English language lyrics translation of that as we're Mm. going along. It's basically a love song about love being in the DNA, so (laughs) it wasn't wasn't that enlightening really. (laughs) No, that's one of their more poppy hits. But they do have a lot of songs that have very interesting lyrics, so look them up. Okay, so, um, and that brings us to a South Korean film that we uh, were looking, we were going to look at when we were doing our, our last most recent um, South Korean focus on television and film, and um, we didn't get around to this one. So you should take point on this one, Megan, because you, you found this one originally. I did. So it was, it's a Netflix original film, and it came out in this year in 2020, so it was released worldwide on Netflix. And the reason it came to my attention is because uh, Choi Woo-shik is in it, and we, of course, did see him in Parasite most recently. So I obviously follow him on Instagram, and so he was doing a little bit of um, PR about this film, and he had sort of, yeah, he said, this is my new film, this is my my gang, you know, and they're all supporting me on the film, and so I was like, oh, I better check this out. So it was written and directed by Yoon Sung Hyun, 
and it premiered at the 70th Berlin International Film Festival on Feb 22nd, 2020, Uh, and it was the first Korean film to be screened in the Berlinale special section. And so just to give you a bit of a vibe, it's a dystopia, another dystopia, sorry, folks, uh, but it's a heist film and it's also an action film. So it's kind of, it's got a lot of different things going on in there, all things which are of interest to Zero G. Um, I'll run through the cast. Look, I'm not going to necessarily run through, in the interest of time, their back catalogues, apart from Choi Woo-sik, who of course, Shik, we did, of course, see in Parasite most recently, he plays Ki-hoon, which is one of the our main sort of core band of, uh, I was going to say band of brothers. They kind of are street brothers, I guess. They're a very close group of friends and they've found themselves um, sort of holding on to this friendship in some very hard times uh, and some very sort of, as they go about different types of illegal activity. But our protagonist is Jun Suk and he's played by Lee Ji-hoon. But then we do also have um, Jang Ho, who's played by An Jae Hong, and Sung Soo, who's a smaller part, but he's also kind of involved in their hijinks, and that's um, Park Jung Min. And then, of course, we have one of our big characters of the film, Han, played by Park Hae Soo, and he is, of course, our antagonist. And I think he does a spectacular job of being creepy, <laughs> very creepy. <laughs> If this was a Japanese film, he'd be played by um, Takeshi Kitano. You can, mm, you can, absolutely. You can see it. Yeah, yeah. So he's very much our, our, our hardcore character. So let me let me lay the scene a little. So it's a dystopian world and we've got these three friends plus that fourth fellow I mentioned who sort of introduced a little bit later. He's a smaller character. Not that he's not still important, but they're just trying to get by now that in South Korea the one has crashed. So we don't get told very much about what has exactly happened, but there was some kind of financial crisis and the world, Korea, if not the world, is in a very sad state. And it's certainly there are drugs, crime, guns, where there previously weren't in that country. Um, on the streets, you know, it's quite quite a dark time. So Jun Suk is our protagonist. He's just been released from prison. He's been in there for a couple of years uh, for a botched crime that they did commit as a group. And Look, they've really started to focus on searching for this dream life. And, of course, when you're searching out for a dream life, that involves money. (laughs) And so they decide that they're going to perform a heist. So we've got a bit of a heist portion of the film, and we won't delve into that too much. But then we move into the next phase of the film, which is essentially where it puts this kind of dystopia setting into good use and becomes this action thriller where they begin to be pursued by Han, this kind of killer character. He's this stoic, ear-slicing killer. He enjoys the chase and he certainly just takes pleasure in watching people run from him and try to escape his pursuit. And so that's kind of the pace and vibe of the movie. It's very bleak. Uh, it's quite grim, actually. Like, it's not kind of a fun and silly film. I'd say it It was very, very bleak to me. Desolate settings, quite empty. What was your thoughts on it, Rob? Well, it's certainly not a caper heist movie. Mm-mm. And uh, there are elements in it that there was a couple of pieces that did made me stop and think that, that Han was perhaps less a professional than he seems to be because he does something, a couple of things in here in the film that I thought, why is he doing that? Is he really doing that just because he gets his kicks from that? 
Yeah. It seemed very unprofessional, you know, compared to, say, um, Leon from the Luc Besson movie of the same name. Mm. But anyway, you know, I mean, what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about a professional assassin here and I've got this idea of how they behave. It's like you are not following the rules of code of conduct for assassins, buddy. Um, I've never even seen him at the guild meetings. (laughs) Exactly. Where is his membership fee? Yeah. Um, but other than that, I thought that the dynamic between the uh, the boys was great. Mm, There's some real mm-hmm. loyalty there, and it's quite touching. Mm. They've got this um, uh, sort of an idealized way out into the into a larger world. Like they want to go and sit on a beach in Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no doubt. Just in time for a water start or something like that, because these guys don't have much luck. And God, no, they have worse luck. And their and their plan was just what were they thinking? Their, their their heist plan. You just look at it and you just go, no. Again, here I am criticizing a heist. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, but yeah, I, I thought that the main feature of this film was the interaction between the characters. Uh, I did enjoy that, and I I really felt that there was a bond that they develop. You know, mm-hmm. on set maybe as well, but it, it sort of worked for me. Uh, I think the film maybe could have done with uh, editing out about 10 minutes or so. Agree. I did have in my notes it's a little long and it's not a long film, but I think it could have done what it did in less time, drags a bit, and it might have been a bit more impactful, I think, if it had been trimmed. I agree. Very, very poignant film. I thought there were some poignant moments that were unexpected to me towards the end and yeah, very immersive atmosphere. I think that's kind of what got me. Like there was the silly kind of actiony bits, not silly, but the more action focus. But there were some really good set pieces. Like there's a creepy hospital, there's a derelict old building, there's some abandoned docks. Like it's. I think it made use of those those kinds of um, sets quite well. But I agree. Like kind of held together with. I think that main character as well. I think he does a really good job of holding together the film along with the relationship with um, with the other boys. So it's it's an interesting film. I I think you're right. It's it's thinking about how the Hollywood do something like this, I think would be very different and also have a very different ending. Um, There's a scene that's, yeah. a scene that's set in a, and I, and I agree, I think they're using a lot of real locations and some, some pretty bleak abandoned sites as well. And and I, I, I just bet that they found a hospital that was um, being closed down or something for one scene, which is an amazing scene. Uh, and I kind of enjoyed it, but also not because of the, the subject matter and the way they handled it. So, you know, yet another bleak thing on Zero G today. <laughs> yes, sorry, folks. Yeah. Uh, what are the details again so the audience can... can? Oh, yes, sorry. So it is called Time to Hunt, or in Korean it's called Sanyang Hui Shigan, and it's on Netflix. So you should be able to um, search for it there in the English titles, Time to Hunt, and it will come up for you. I don't know if it's got dubs but it, there's subtitles available so you can watch it on there hmm. all right well that's about it for zero g for today and i think that we will go out with a track from labyrinth since we were talking about jennifer connelly who played sarah in that uh david bowie so that's our bowie for the week underground so you can get into your train and go into the loop <laughs> underground All right. Thank you very much, Megan. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. See you all on the other side of the railway track. 
G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.